Open your Bibles to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1. On this Father's Day, you ready to hear the word this morning? Yeah? You awake? Ready? All right, that's what I wanted to hear. We are returning to something we began last week. We'll finish it this week, Lord willing. And that is the end of uh, this first great chapter in Paul's letter to the church here at Ephesus, looking particularly at verses 15 through 23 in the end of the chapter. Entitled this message, Praying Like Paul. Praying Like Paul. I have a question for you, just as we get started here, for you to think about. And here's the question. Perhaps you've thought this yourself. Maybe you've even vocalized it or it's been asked of you. But the question is this. If God is sovereign, why pray? If God is sovereign, why do we pray? I mean, if God knows everything, directs everything, there's no stray molecules in the universe, which is all very, very true, then why do we pray? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. So certainly for him, prayer was not just an occasional sort of thing, but it very much characterized his life. He was a man of prayer, and yet he was also here, as we learned over these months in the earlier part of this chapter, so firmly persuaded in the depth of his being as to the absolute sovereignty of God over any and all things. So why pray? Well, there are many, many answers to that, and um, that certainly could be a sermon series on its own, but let me just leave this with you as we begin together here, and And it is this, God ordains the means as well as the end. God ordains in his sovereignty the means as well as the end. And the means that God has ordained to achieve his purposes are through his people praying. So why pray? Because God said to pray, and that really ought to be enough for any of us. But in this section here, in verses 15 and following, we find a model that is useful, I think, to us, indeed helpful to us, in how to pray under the light of the sovereignty of God. How do we pray in light of this reality of God's great sovereignty? What God has already sovereignly accomplished actually constitutes the specific reason for which Paul prays here in this section of the letter. It it informs his prayer, it shapes his prayer, as he prays back to God that God would accomplish the very purposes that he has foreordained. The intent of this prayer is that those in Ephesus would know in their own lives the benefits that Paul has mentioned in the doxology here that began in verse and ran all the way through verse 14. In other words, that it would be more than just an intellectual awareness, but that it would be a a deep, life-transforming reality in their lives. Let me read the text for you as we get started together here this morning, taking it up in verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. As we began in this text last week, we said structurally that we can find here three prayer priorities. Three prayer priorities from the Apostle Paul that we want to look at, that we want to examine together so that we will become more effective in our own prayer. So that we will learn to pray like Paul. That our prayers will come in line with the sovereign will of God. And thus, that we will have the assurance of God's answer to our prayer. Last time, we noted that the first of those priorities found in verses 15 and 16 was thanksgiving. It was the priority of thanksgiving for God's saving grace. For this reason, Paul says, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. For this reason, that is, in light of the, of the magnificence of, the, of the, the sovereignty of God that Paul has, has laid out for the readers here in verses 3 and following, that he is compelled to, to raise his voice in praise to God. Three times he had said in that section alone, it is to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And so, Paul raises his voice here in prayer, in thanksgiving, praising God for what he has done. Praising God for election, sovereign election. Praising God for his predestination unto adoption in union with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praising God for redemption earned by the very blood of God's own Son, Praising God for the sealing of the Spirit of God who takes up residence within the people of God at the moment of their salvation, assuring them that God will carry through on what He has promised. All of salvation, beloved, from the plan to the execution of it to the final assurance and and fruition of it, is all of God's salvation belongs to the Lord. It is of the Lord. And it is the work of the triune God. And so, Paul is thanking God. It is only natural to thank God when we take the time to think about what we have experienced personally and what we have seen and know to be true in the lives of the people of God. Specifically, when Paul says, for this reason, 
it is likely a reference here, as we've said last time, to verses 13 and 14, and in particular, the inclusion of Gentiles into the very plan of God, whereby those who were once far away, far off, alienated, separated from God, without hope, separate from the covenant promises of God, have been brought near in Christ. For this reason, the great apostle to the Gentiles raises his voice in praise and thanksgiving to God. And that needs to be a priority, a prayer for me and for you. Not sure what to pray? Begin by thanking God for redemption, both in your own life and in the life of those you know. Secondly, second prayer priority here, we said last time, is intercession. After thanking God, Paul begins to intercede, that he begins to petition God. And and his petition is basically this, that the lights would go on for people, that God would turn on the lights for them, that they would understand just what God has done for them. Where Paul says there, um, uh, making mention of you in my prayers that the God, verse 17, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. We noted last time that Paul is not praying here for God to do something new. He's not asking for God to do anything for these people that God has not already accomplished for them in the fullness and totality of his plan. He is not asking for anything new, anything additional. He is asking them simply this, asking God simply this, on behalf of the people of God, that they might fully grasp the implications of what God has already done. Simply that. No new blessings. Nothing more. Because there could be nothing more. We have everything in union with Christ. But simply this. Can we begin to realize the reality of who we are and what we have and begin to live our lives accordingly? Specifically, that Paul prays here in verses 13 and 14, as we said, that those having received the Spirit of God will now experience the ministry of the Spirit of God as it relates to knowing God the Father in His sovereignty and His glory. And specifically, Paul calls out three things here. Three things that, the, that they might be enlightened on. That the, that the lights would go on, that the, that the shadows would clear away, that they would understand, know, and, and experientially grasp. Three things. The first we find here in the second half of verse 18, and it's that they might understand the goal of their salvation. He prays specifically they might understand the goal of their salvation. In other words, their their future destiny with Christ. Paul says it here, what is the hope of his calling? Paul prays for the believers at Ephesus, and by extension, he can pray for one another that, that we might understand what is the goal of our salvation. Where is it all headed? Where is it all going? Now this word hope, this word hope, it's not a wishful thinking. Biblically speaking, when the, when, the, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a firm conviction, a, a settled conviction in the heart, brought about in response to the truth of the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God. And so Paul is praying here that, that they would have an expanded awareness, a firm conviction about the full implication 
of being called of God. The full implication of being called by God. Back in verse 10, this, this idea here of the hope of God's calling is, is spoken of a different way. And it, there it's spoken about the summing up of all things in Christ. You see it in verse 10? The summing up of all things in Christ. And, and when we were looking at those verses together, what we noted was that that expression, the summing up of all things in Christ, is, is basically a statement about the Messiah's kingdom. That is the trajectory of, of where is this earth going? You know, where is history headed here? It looks so messed up, so confusing, so out of control. Where is it heading? Where is it going? It is going to Messiah's kingdom. He is coming again. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to establish peace and righteousness. He's going to put down sin and rebellion. And then he's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. It is the final and decisive intervention of God to deal with the problem of sin, the problem of rebellion, and all the attendant consequences of it. That, my friends, is the hope of your calling. It is what gives you your commitments, your convictions, your anchor of your soul, that we're going somewhere. This is the comfort. This is the strength. When life is really, really hard, when the difficulties seem that they're going to overwhelm you, when the injustices that you see all around you, and you wonder, oh God, where are you? It's all going to come to conclusion in the return of Messiah and the establishment of His kingdom. This is the hope of your calling. And Paul would want you, as he wants the Ephesians here, to, to come to a, to a full understanding of that reality. Secondly, he prays that they might know the generosity of their inheritance. You see it there in the end of verse 18. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? What is the generosity of our inheritance? Again, we look back into the doxology in verse 11 where inheritance is introduced for us. Where there it says, in Him that is in union with Christ, we, we also have obtained an inheritance. And then down in verse 14, where the Spirit has been given as a pledge of our inheritance. And, and so we talked about that. What is our inheritance? And we said in union with Christ, it is the inheritance of the firstborn that we receive the inheritance that Christ Himself receives from the Father. We share the right of the firstborn. We said there is coming a time, my friends, when there will be no more bent, broken, and twisted bodies. There is coming a time, my friends, when there will be no more internal and external defilement from sin. There's coming a time, my friends, when there will be no more ruptured relationships. There's coming a time, my friends, when we will share a stewardship over this creation that will make Eden pale in comparison. There is coming a time, my friends, for us to enjoy the reality of our multi-ethnic family relationships in the family of God. These are our inheritance in union with Christ. This is the right of the firstborn that has been granted to us in union with Him. And may we know that. May we experience that. May it provide the anchor to our soul. Third, 
Paul prays specifically that they may be enlightened, that they might get it, that the lights might go on in the sense that they might be impressed by the greatness of God's power which is available to them. Verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? Christians, historically, and even presently, are not very impressive people. We're really not much. We move through the pages of history, we come, we go, and and history seldom records anything about us. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble-born. In the face of adversity and hostility, we're a weak and even by worldly standards, contemptible people. But Paul prays, Paul prays here that that God will pull back the curtain, as it were, and enable them to see they are not helpless victims, but the power of God is on their side. And my friends, I pray the same for us today. That in this text, the, the power of God might be displayed for us so that we might understand it, that the, that the enlightenment of our eyes, that the blinders will come off for us. And you might understand that, that there is the most incredible power of God that He has placed in service to you as a child of God, to His people, to the church as the people of God. Now, having these lights go on, having the lights go on is not a one-time event. It's not like, hey, one sermon about lights going on, boom, the switches all flick, everybody's lighted up, and off we go, right? It was only so easy. It was only so easy. The problem is, my friends, that you are forgetful. You are forgetful, as I am forgetful. The problem, my friends, is is that I have a doubting heart. And so I hear a sermon and and I get energized and I get get convicted and I get inspired and and so forth. And then I go up and I go out and and I collide with Monday morning. And I tend to forget. So this is not a one time reality here about the the lights going on, but it is a continual reality discovery process. It's a continual reacquaintance with these great truths. And it comes about as we pray together and as we meditate on His Word in in the light of the circumstances of our lives. We come together for many reasons, but not the least of which is because we need the batteries recharged. We need to be recharged. You know, there is great danger in complacency. You know that, don't you? There is great danger in complacency. We we can uh, deceive ourselves. We often deceive ourselves into into thinking that uh, if we're not moving forward, we're at least standing still. That we're not losing any ground. The problem is, is, is that life is not lived on the ground. and It's more like an analogy that life is lived in a canoe on a river. 
And as long as we're paddling, we're, we're progressing upstream. But it's when we pull the paddle from the water and decide to coast a while, decide to just take a rest, that we lose ground. That we lose ground. These are the dangers of complacency. So we need to, to be about the encouragement of one another. Put your paddle back in the water. Maybe you came in here this morning with your paddle across your knees. We're here to encourage you to get your paddle back in the water. How? Well, it's as simple as this to begin with. It's to get your Bible open and begin to read it. Begin to read your Bible daily. To read your Bible every day. Make it a habit. Make it a part of your life. And meditate on what you read. Meditate. Not, not Eastern meditation where, where you, you empty your mind and adopt some odd position and start to hum. Right? The idea of all of that is to sort of empty your mind. No. Christian meditation is to fill the mind with the truth of the gospel of Christ, and then begin to ruminate on it, to think on it, to, rem- to remind yourself and to reflect on it. We need to be exposed to the regular preaching of the Scriptures. These are one of the means of grace that God has given to His people. The exposition of the Word of God opens up the Word by the power of the Spirit and helps us to see the truth and its implications for our lives. We need preaching, good preaching, lots of preaching, deep preaching. We need to be reading theology. We need to find good theology books and read them. So that we might, again, round out our understandings of God. We need to be together in public worship, pursuing and praising God. You know, there's something about the union of God's people when their voices come together in song that it so uplifts the Spirit. It so invigorates the the passion for Christ. We don't sing to God as much as we sing to each other. And I need to hear you sing. I sit down front. I need to hear you sing. I I want my ears filled with your singing. You got to come in here week after week, and I need the encouragement of it. I need you to sing the truth to me, and I need to sing it back to you. We need interaction with other believers to discuss the Word of God. That's why we do small group ministries. It's to, it's to interact with the Word of God. You know, the preaching is super important, but it's, it's still a one-way dialogue. We need time with each other and interact together on the Word. And we need to pray. Personally, corporately, intercessorily, that we, ourselves, and and others would grow, all others would grow in the knowledge and understanding of the blessings that have been made available in Christ. Paul prays here for these realities for them. Thanksgiving for God's saving grace His priority of intercession, that the lights would go on. And now third, third for this morning. The third prayer priority of the Apostle Paul, beginning here at the end of verse 19 and through the end of the chapter, is meditation. Meditation upon God's most decisive display of power. 
If I were to ask you to think about the power of God, what would come to your mind? What illustration would come to your mind if I were to say to you, describe the power of God to me. Think about the power of God. Perhaps it would be a thunderstorm. Maybe, maybe you, those of you who have either you know, lived in the Midwest or, or other parts of the country where those powerful thunderheads come through and it is, it is incredible how much power there is and you see the lightning coming down and striking the ground. It's amazing that the power of God or maybe it's a volcano erupting and, and just spewing forth all of that lava. Or maybe it's the heat of the sun. You think about the reality of the, the temperature of the sun and, and how hot it is. It's the power of God. Maybe it's a walk in the woods where you pick up a little acorn and you recognize that the power of God inherent in this little acorn where it will someday be a mighty oak. These are displays of the power of God and there are many, many more. But in thinking about the power of God here, Paul wanting to direct his readers in their meditation, he instead points to three amazing examples of the power of God and it all relates to the resurrection of Christ. That is Paul's preeminent illustration of the power of God. Notice how he heaps up the terms here for the power of God in verse 19. The surpassing greatness, he says, of his power. Down in the end of the verse, he says, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. As if he's, it's like he's grasping for, for words to try to, 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 to explain that which is unexplainable. The very power of God itself. And so the example he begins with here is the resurrection. The resurrection. That's the first decisive display of the power of God. End of verse 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. I think of all the mysteries in the universe, the mystery of life and death has got to be one of the most enigmatic, the most difficult to understand. What is life? If I were to ask you that question, what is life? The medical community and the ethicists are struggling all the time with that question. What is life? Conversely, what is death? What is death? How does one go from life to death? What happens? Why? What brings about one or the other. Well, we know from the Scripture that God holds the power of both. He holds in His hand the power of life and the power of death. And there's something about death and its finality that makes it a fearsome enemy. 
It's a good thing to go to a funeral. Solomon tells us that in Ecclesiastes. He says it's a good thing. Because why? Well, because it brings a certain sobriety to your life. When you see someone who's dead, you know they're beyond you. They're beyond you. Death and subsequent decay, they are, they are forces that, that lie outside of us, beyond us. We can't... And they can be terrifying. But in the resurrection of Christ, God shattered death. He shattered death. Three days in the tomb, right? The body began to decay. In the case of Lazarus and the old King James, you know, the Lord, he stinketh, he says, or she says. And yet God raised Christ from the dead. He raised him from the dead. Never to die again. Never to die again. No more death. No more decay. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is the first fruit of that resurrection for all who believe. That means... In union with Him, I share that reality of the resurrection life. Death no longer has a hold on me. No longer has a hold on me. Will I die the natural death of this world? Likely. But it cannot hold me. The grave cannot grip me. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, Paul says that the sting of death is sin. Because death is the, is the consequence of sin. And so in the resurrection, we have the, the firm assurance that in the resurrection of Christ and the conquest of death, that Christ had conquered sin. All of the guilt of all of God's people for all of eternity loaded onto the very Son of God and He drank the cup of the wrath of God to every single drop. He left it dry. There is nothing for me or you. Jesus took it all. And so when God raised Him from the dead, He put on display the most amazing power. It is the proclamation that sin has been conquered. Meditate on that reality, my friends. Secondly, Christ's exaltation. Meditate on His resurrection. Secondly, Paul would have us meditate on Christ's exaltation. The, the, the other example of the decisive display of the power of God is the exaltation of Christ. I mean, listen, 
God the Father not only raised Jesus from the dead again, but, but through and through Him conquering sin and death, but he, but he also vested Christ with supreme authority in the universe. He made Him head of all. Verse 20. Where it says, He raised Him from the dead, look at the end of the verse, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. He not only raised Christ from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin, but then He exalted Christ, vesting Him with all authority. All authority. Seated Him at His right hand, He says, verse 20. A reference to Psalm 110 in verse 1. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The great messianic psalm at the enthronement of Christ. Now this expression here, seated him at his right hand. We need to be careful. This is an anthropomorphic expression. That is, that it is, that it is applying human characteristics to, to something that is, that is not um, part of the natural world. I guess I'd say it that way. In other words, that, that we shouldn't expect to, if, if we were to be transported in heaven, to find two thrones you know, sitting there, material thrones with God the Father on one and and Jesus sitting on the other one next to him in his right hand. It's a, it's a statement about authority. To be seated at the right hand is a statement about authority. In other words, it's, it's a way to describe God the Father vesting the resurrected Son with the reign of governance over both the church and the universe. Listen, Jesus has been exalted to the highest place in all the universe. Now, it's, I think I probably should say here that this does not mean, this does not mean that prior to the resurrection, that Christ is not the Son of Man, right? Spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, He is not the second person of the triune God. Of course He is. But Jesus had a trial to undergo. He had a, a mission to accomplish. He had a, a task to do. And it was to come and to die. Secure the redemption of his people. And it is by his willing submission to the Father's sovereign plan that he came and that he died and that the Father then raised him from the dead again and exalted him to this highest place. Psalm 110 and verse 1 is speaking about the public inauguration of the God-man to whom all power and authority has now been committed. Certainly reminded of Matthew's Gospel, huh? In chapter 28, where Jesus says, beginning in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. This 
is the exaltation of Christ. This is the vesting of Christ with the authority that has been committed to him. The apostles understood this. Peter, in his preaching in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, where he says in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God the Father has exalted him to his right hand, invested him with all governing authority. The exaltation of Christ. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul refers to this resurrection. He says that he was declared the Son of God with power. He was declared the Son of God with power. What's Christ doing there, by the way, on the throne? Is he just kind of hanging out? Relaxing? You know, hey, it was, it was hard. I need to rest. <laughs> no, beloved, it is, he is far from inactive. He is far from inactive. We'll see here in a moment in Paul's third example that by being vested with all authority then given to the church that Christ is, is actively involved in the governance and affairs of the church. Notice what Paul says here. He seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. He goes on to say, far above all rule and authority, verse 21, and power and dominion and every name that is named. What's all that about? I think in context, uh, uh, historical context here, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. If you remember from Acts chapter 19, when the gospel came in power to Ephesus and they were turned from their pagan ways, they brought out their magic books. Do you remember this? And they burned them, 50,000 pieces of silver, the value of that. Ephesus was a hotbed of pagan magic. We're not talking sleight of hand. We are talking active involvement and contact with the demonic realm. It permeated their society. It ruled over them in fear. In fact, what they understood of the world was is that you needed to know the name of the demon. If you knew its name, then you could harness its power. You could bring it under your control. That's true today in other parts of the world still steeped in paganism. And here's the scary part, my friends, is that paganism is on the rise here in the U.S. We are far more pagan as a nation now than we were 20 years ago. And if Christ delays His return much longer, I fear for 20 years future. An author that I have great respect for by the name of Peter Jones wrote a book called The Pagans and the Pews. Get it and read it pagans in the pews. Paul is not necessarily laying out here for us in verse 21, you know, all rule, all authority, power, dominion. Some think that he's speaking of a hierarchy of the demonic realm. That's possible. 
But nowhere does the Scripture make it clear what it might be. So then what you do is you get all kinds of people's subjective ideas about what it, what it all is he's talking about here. Are there, are there rankings and hierarchy within the demonic realm? Likely. I mean, there certainly are within the angelic realm. In the demonic realm are fallen angels. And so I say it's likely. But do we know what it is? I would say no. I mean, we don't even know what the rankings are really within the, within the realm of the holy angels. And we have more information about that. So I don't believe what Paul is doing here when he talks about you know, rule, authority, power, dominion, that he's trying to give you that you know, there's like this is the top dog and then, you know, then it's got a lieutenant and you know, that sort of thing. In fact, that's exactly what the Ephesians were, were guilty of. This idea of, of having to know the names and the authorities of these people they were talking, you know, the demons behind the, the false gods they're worshiping. By the way, Acts 19.13 is the only place in the New Testament where this expression, naming of names, is used. And it's used there in the context of the church at Ephesus. So I think what Paul is doing here is, is he's basically emphasizing the reality that whatever levels of power exist in the demonic realm, Christ is superior to all. That's the point. All rule, he says, right? All rule... Every name. Jesus is Lord of all. He is above. He is superior. He, he has vested within Him the authority, or on Him and in Him the authority over all other forces of the universe. And they are not only inferior to Christ, but notice verse 22, that they are subject to Christ. You see it? And he put all things in subjection under his feet. This, by the way, is a reference to Psalm 8 that was read for us earlier this morning. That's the reference to Psalm 8 and verse 6. And it speaks about Christ's position of unparalleled honor and universal authority. Now, Psalm 8 is not normally thought of as a messianic psalm. But Paul enlists Psalm 8, and in particular verse 6, because it expresses well this reality of the universal authority and elevation of Christ. It kind of goes like this. In Genesis 1, 26-28, right, we find the dominion mandate. That is that Adam is given dominion over the creation of God. And Adam failed. And Adam failed. Psalm 8 is written and, and basically says that, that his offspring, that is Adam's offspring, although still fallen, retain the royal right to rule. That is, in the fall, Adam and, and us, who are the descendants of Adam, we are, we are bent, we are twisted, we are deformed, but we have not lost our humanity. We remain God's highest creation with a mandate to exercise dominion over the creation for the glory of God the Father. That's something that, that you and I as, as children of God, possessed of the Spirit of God, with minds being renewed by the Spirit to the reality of who we really are, we can begin to exercise that. 
we can actually begin to exercise a godly dominion. If you'd like to explore those ideas more, I, I did a seri sermon series a few years ago on a theology of work. I commend it to you. Find it on the website and, and check it out. There is so much to that, and, and it will change your Monday mornings. Basically, why Paul enlists Psalm 8 and verse 6 here for Christ is, is what he is saying is that Jesus is the last Adam, the second Adam, right? The first Adam was given dominion and he failed. Psalm 8 says that, that the descendants of Adam, you know, what is man, you know, that you would take notice of us, but we still have dominion. And then Paul says, but in the second Adam, Christ, that dominion comes to its full fruition, in His universal authority, that He is above all. He is over all. And in fact, over in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, Paul tells us there that when Jesus has accomplished all in His great earthly millennial kingdom, He will then surrender up the kingdom to the Father. That all will become. God will be all in all. Paul is making a comprehensive statement here. And he's specifying that regardless of the designation, regardless of the title, regardless of the, of the ruling powers of heaven and earth, both now and for eternity, they are all inferior to Christ. Therefore. Okay, that's knowledge. Now let's go to understanding. Therefore. If you are a child of God this morning, then you have direct, sympathetic, and immediate access to the supreme power of the universe. Meditate on that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. And think about this. Where do you go first when you need help? Where is the first place you go? Who's the first person you think about? The old joke is, we've tried everything, now I guess we'll have to pray, right? <laughs> it's only funny because it's so true of us. Jesus is supreme. And I can come to him, and you can come to him any time, any place, with any concern. And you have a sympathetic ear. Not just somebody like a friend who will listen and, and cry with you, but somebody who can do something about it. Therefore, another implication of the reality of the, of the exaltation of Christ that, that we need to meditate on is this. If we worship anything or anybody other than Christ, it is illogical, it is disloyal, and it is sinful. So, as Christians, we 
cannot bow the knee to Caesar. We cannot. To do so would be disloyal to Christ. To do so would be illogical. Why in the world would I bow my knee to someone inferior to Christ? To do so would be sinful. For it would be to reject the reality of the exalted Christ. This is why the church has sealed her testimony with her blood. She cannot compromise. Another implication, I think, of this exaltation of Christ is that we should not fear any earthly or or, um, spiritual power. There are many powerful people in this world, and we're not one of them. And the spiritual power of the demonic realm is great. Blinds the minds of the unbelieving. So they cannot see the truth of the gospel. But they all exist. Both human potentate and, and demonic power, Satan himself, exist under the sovereign authority of the exalted Christ. Do you understand that? Listen, Satan had to ask God's permission to trouble Job. Meditate, ruminate, think about the exalted Christ. Third, the third illustration or example of the the power of God here is Christ's session. Christ's session. Notice here at the end of verse 22 where it says, And He gave Him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and all. This word session is an old word, an old theological term. It's kind of gone out of popularity. I was looking in some more contemporary theological texts and I was looking for you know, the index for the word session and it's not there and that's a shame should be there. Okay? Session is a, is a word to speak about the exalted Christ's present activities in heaven for us. Remember I told you, he's, on, he's at the Father's right hand, right? But he's not inactive. He is very, very active. And the old theologian, theologians would refer to the present activity of Christ in this exalted position at the Father's right hand as his session. His session. Now notice what Paul says. He gave him, that is Christ, he gave Christ as head, that is ruling authority, to the church. Jesus is a gift to the church in his exalted position. That's stunning to think about. That is stunning to think about. So what is the session all about here? Well, here are the sort of general categories. I just run these through you, and you'll go, oh, yeah, I, I can think of a verse that ties into that and that and the other. And, you know, I should just be encouraged by all of this. 
The session of Christ includes his ruling and protecting his church by his spirit and governing it through his appointed officers. So there is a, there is a ruling and protecting role of Christ right now at the Father's right hand in the church, in this church. Christ's session involves him acting as high priest, where he continually presents his completed sacrifice to the Father as a sufficient basis to maintain our justification and our sanctification. How come we don't lose it when we screw up? Because Christ is there to continue to present that sacrifice to the Father. This is the sufficient means, Father, for that sin too. He maintains our justification. He maintains our sanctification. He's making intercession for His church. Thus making our prayers and our service acceptable to the Father. I was talking with somebody, I can't remember, it was last week I believe. We were talking about motives and we were just acknowledging that motives are always mixed. And, and I don't even know what my own motives at times are. And I, and I, but I know this, they're not pure. They're not pure. But Christ is, is interceding for me. And he's, and he's making my service acceptable to the Father. He, he, is, he is making my prayers acceptable to the Father. He, inter- he intercedes on behalf of His people. Beyond that, he, he continues through His Holy Spirit, His prophetic work of revealing the Father. Right? He came to make the Father known. He is continuing that revealing prophetic work of, of making the Father known. It was first through his apostles and then the inspiration of their word in the, in the Scripture. It is now through the reading and the preaching of the Word of God, the guidance of the church. Jesus is actively involved in these things. It makes the church, as Paul says, the pillar and support of the truth. It's the work of Christ. It is the exalted Christ given for the benefit of the church that is the illustration of what Paul says there in verse 19, the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. And here's the comfort in it all. Because the Father has given the exalted Son to the church, in whom all authority in heaven and earth, both now and forever, resides. We have everything we need. Everything we need to fulfill our purpose here on earth. Isn't that cool? Right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Next verse. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Every resource we need, we have in Christ. So how do we pray in light 
of the sovereignty of God. How do we pray? May God's Spirit help each of us make whatever necessary adjustments we need to in our own prayer life to bring ours in line with what Paul has modeled for us. May we learn to pray like Paul. Our Father, it is a great and lofty request that we make that we could pray like Paul. But Father, we know it's not out of the realm. It's not unattainable. Paul was a man with a nature like ours. And yet he was so steeped in the Word of God, so convinced the truth of who you are, that he was transformed in a way that enabled him to to plant so many churches. Our Father, we, we don't ask that we could all become little Apostle Pauls. That would be ridiculous. For there was only one. There was only one Apostle to the Gentiles, and it was Him, not us. And yet, Father, in this letter, He recorded His prayer for these Ephesian believers and and beyond for us 2,000 years later as we read this letter because He wanted us to know something. and He wanted us to do something. He wanted us to emulate a life in which the lights have gone on. So Lord, I pray for each of us. You help us to begin to to think seriously and begin to pray earnestly with regard to these things. Our Father, how how our missionary endeavors would be empowered and magnified if God's people would pray this way. How the truth of the gospel would be lifted up and glorified we were to pray this way, how our, how our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving which would root out the discontentment and the grumbling that so often sneaks in if we were to think and pray this way. How strong we could be in the marketplace. Not in ourselves, but in the, but in the power of your might if we could think and, and pray this way. How pleased you would be and how glorious would be our worship if we could think and pray these ways. God, help us. For Jesus' sake, amen.